Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. I'm Jenny Jagman. I'm Eva Garmendia. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Hi. Just a short note before we start the episode. First of all, welcome to this 2020. I hope you had a great holidays. And as you notice, this episode is coming one week later than we normally release our episodes, the first Monday of every month. We really apologize for that, but we hope you enjoy anyway. And just a note about our interviewee. He has changed recently his position at the Norwegian Institute of Public Health, and now he is a specialist director for strategy and development. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, welcome to this month's episode. Today we're featuring an interview that Eva did with Dr. Jasper Littmann, who is at the Norwegian Public Health Agency. This was in association with a workshop that he came and talked at at the UAC focusing on ethics and antibiotics. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, welcome, Dr. Jasper Littmann. We are really happy to have you with us today. You are here in Uppsala because you are being part of a workshop on ethics and antibiotics. So could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Sure, yes, and uh, thank you for having me. So um, my name is uh, Jasper Littmann. I am the director of the Center for Antimicrobial Resistance at the Norwegian Institute of Public Health. I am originally an ethicist who works on antimicrobial resistance and more recently, I've moved into mostly policy work related to antibiotic resistance. So you actively work on the field of ethics right now, applied to policy. Is that right? I actually work with ethics sort of on the side at this point. Primarily, I work in a public health institute and I deal with AMR-related questions that come up in the context of a national public health institute. But ethics, of course, does play into that, uh, certainly when looking at policy development and the consequences of different policies. So it's, it's a field that I still pursue, yes. Mm. How did you get into the problem of AMR? How did your path lead you to study AMR? Very randomly. I got funding for a PhD project, which was supposed to be on infectious disease control and ethics. And uh, this was at, at University College London. And I got co-funding at the time from what at the time was the Health Protection Agency, what is now Public Health England. And uh, we received a grant to look at questions that might be of relevance related ethical questions that might be relevant for infectious disease control. And I thought we would probably work on vaccination or social distancing measures to avoid spreading of infections. And then I had a first meeting with my supervisor at uh, Public Health England, and he said, what do you know about antibiotic resistance? And I said, nothing. And uh, that was pretty much the start. So we then developed a project around the question of whether or not antibiotic resistance is ethically relevant and to what extent answers that could be produced in this project might be of relevance uh, to policymaking. When in time was this, to put it into the context of... This must uh, have been in 2011, I believe. 2011, 2012, when I started my PhD. How did you see that the global reaction towards AMR was back then? So it's been a tumultuous, really interesting time, I guess, actually, to move into the field of AMR. This was before the Global Action Plan uh, was launched. So AMR didn't have the media profile it has today. It wasn't as high on the agenda, you might say. This was way before the O'Neill report. That's this was way so before the O'Neill review. That's right, yes. So that came in 2014, I believe. And uh, by that time, I was just uh, finishing up my PhD thesis. Yes. Yeah, because you were in the UK, which is actually the country that 
kind of ask for this report to be made and that's right. kind of responsible yeah. for this big overall uh, media boost, so, so to speak. So being in the UK was certainly, I think, advantageous. Public Health England as an agency was very aware and very involved in dealing with antimicrobial resistance, primarily at a national level. And then through Dame Sally Davis, the UK also received a broader international profile for AMR. I think she certainly has to be credited for that. As chief medical officer in the UK, she did a tremendous job lifting AMR on the international policy agenda and indeed we've now seen that we don't only have a global action plan but we have an interagency coordination group, we have uh, all sorts of policy instruments and working groups in this field that are really starting to make a difference in terms of coordinating the global response. Yeah, we talked here in the podcast how much the awareness at a political level has increased in the past years of the problem and how these global action plans and national action plans are actually trying to be implemented. You're coming from UK and then I believe you were working here in Sweden for a while, also in policy measures within REACT. That's right, yes. So I worked for REACT, think tank uh, that works on antibiotic resistance, and that was a great opportunity for me to look at more practical sides of policy making against antibiotic resistance. You have to remember that most of my PhD research given that it was an ethics, was rather abstract. Mm-hmm. And React, in essence, offered me an opportunity to get thrown in at the deep end and to really look at what policymaking in the field of AMR looks like in not just high-income countries, but also in low- and middle-income countries, and to better understand the multitude and the complexity of problems related to AMR and addressing it in different contexts. Was your work at React right after finishing your research on your PhD? Uh, Relatively short after that. I had a a brief interlude in Germany where I had a postdoc position where I finished some of the papers that I Mm -hmm. didn't quite finish Mm -hmm. during the PhD. But I think during that time, I already realized that if you talk about this kind of problem, it's very hard to remain on the sidelines. If you take seriously the potential threat that AMR poses, for me at least, it was quite natural to try and work with actively fixing it or addressing it. So uh, more applied just work, it. right? That's right. Yeah. Because what I understood from your talk, when you presented all these questions, it was kind of the result of your work as a PhD so your work was to bring up these questions. Of course, there was no really answer to them. But then you moved on to working things more applied that could actually have a tangible effect on the problem of AMR by but, applying these questions into policy and trying to find a way out or, or an answer to them, right? Yes, I think that's the ultimate goal. I'd like to think that what I work with now has a more measurable impact, but it was certainly the goal to not just comment on the developments from the sidelines, but to, to get more involved, precisely because it is something, it is, a, it is a problem that I worry about that I think deserves our full attention and that we as society must do something about. Our podcast, of course, it's uh, one initiative we have to bring awareness to people that might be interested in science in general, but don't know so much about the topic. Mm. And you actively, in policy, the communication part is so important because you try to, to get an answer and actions from bodies that might not know about the problem so much. So people like you are kind of key into translating these issues into a language that can be understood and that can have the impact impact that you wish for in these politicians, for example. What do you think are the main challenges? Of course, I know there are a lot of them, but for our audience, what do you think is the most challenging part of this work? 
I think AMR remains a rather elusive concept for many. It's complicated. It seems to be a mixture of medical and biological phenomena that people struggle to understand and put into context. And I think for a very long time, we've struggled to provide a good answer to the question, what does this mean for me or for us? It was described as a as a mechanism, a microbiological mechanism, if you like. And people really struggle to put that into context. In essence, the answer to the question, so what? Right? I've described something to you. Now I need to explain to you why this matters to you, to your society, to future persons in that society or around the world for that matter. And being better at, in essence, providing a overview of the areas where AMR will affect the way that we deliver healthcare, and at the same time also offering concrete steps that can be undertaken to mitigate this. I think that was the original challenge. That's one that we're still working on, but I think one that we've become much better at over the last couple of years. And you mentioned earlier initiatives like the O'Neill Review. For all the shortcomings of some of the numbers that are often cited in these reports, I think they've played an instrumental role in actually putting a figure. We can debate whether or not it's the figure, but a figure on the consequences of inaction. And thereby have succeeded, I would say, in moving AMR into a policy sphere where it becomes more widely discussed and is also addressed perhaps in a more effective manner than it was previously. We need to have a way to reach the right people and to get the right response. I agree and I think we shouldn't be too harsh there. It isn't really relevant for the report whether or not 10 million people a year will die by 2050 or 8 million or Mm. 7.5. The point is that this is a clear trend, it's getting worse, and coordinated action at all levels must be taken. And I, I have a lot of respect for the work that came out of that working group and the effect that this report has and has had and, and continues to have. Because I think as much as scientists and epidemiologists and others in this field disagree with individual numbers, the fact that we all continue to refer to it makes quite clear that it addressed a need and it filled a void where we didn't previously have figures that we could use or a well-integrated overview of how AMR affects different parts of society over time. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it was kind of the kickstart, we can call it, of opening a big conversation and to put thought into it. Because the O'Neill Report is not just the O'Neill Report isolated. After the O'Neill Report, for example, two years after, there was a whole issue of a journal trying to address, okay, after the O'Neill Report, what has happened after? What things have changed they call it also the Ten Commandments coming from the O'Neill Report. So a lot of people have put a lot of thought into what does this mean and what is the way forward. So definitely we agree that it was a good thing that it happened and that it was a commission to be done. Uh, moving a little bit forward, I would like to, because you've been working on AMR actually a lot of years. You are, you are somebody that has seen how this thing has evolved. You pointed out a little bit about this before. How do you see that the field has changed? Or what are the most the key places where you have seen change? So I think it's grown exponentially over the last couple of years. We see a lot more activity across all areas, I think. We see new actors, new players entering the debate. And I think in many areas that's really important because it opens new avenues for discussion. It introduces new subject areas and new academic disciplines to this discussion. And it fosters a sense of shared responsibility that not just researchers but policymakers, practitioners have to address this challenge. At the same time, and I think this is inevitable when so many new actors enter a field, 
I think the fields become much more crowded and in essence, more difficult to navigate. So we now see a lot of initiatives that are either very similar or duplicate each other's efforts in certain fields. And that, of course, is a problem given that resources going into this is still limited. I'm optimistic about this sort of working out in the future. I think the important thing is that AMR has reached a certain level of awareness mm-hmm. um, in society in general. And I'm quite optimistic that it'll sort of retain that status for the foreseeable future. But I think we need to be careful to identify those levers with the greatest sort of promise of delivering substantive change over time. And perhaps at the moment, we're still a little bit stuck in that phase where we're debating all of the different options that are on the table without really looking at priorities. Yeah, this kind of links to my next question, which is, even though it has changed so much and things are going for the better, what do you think are the key challenges that we still are facing and that we need to work on actively? Well, I think it really depends what your perspective there is and what parts of the world you're looking at. In some ways, the challenges of AMR have remained very static, right? So in some countries, it is still the issue of access to Mm -hmm. antibiotics. In many regions, it's still a problem of having access to a well-organized healthcare system that would actually be able to provide antibiotics under stewardship conditions and so on and so forth. And I think at the same time, in high-income countries such as Sweden, such as Norway, the real focus now should be on trying to see how to best implement the different policies. And in essence, we have enough knowledge to proceed and to... Research is always great. There are always unanswered questions, but there's a lot we can do with the current sort of body of research that exists. What we're not so good at is trying to work out how do we get people, for instance, to change behavior? Mm-hmm. Uh, how can we ensure that things that are written in guidelines aren't just there. don't just exist on paper, but are actually implemented in practice? And this is a field that I think we haven't looked at well enough so far. We've sort of paid lip service to the importance of integration, but we haven't really dedicated enough resources and perhaps haven't also brought in the people with a sufficiently sort of strong background in that field to really address it. And that would be people with a communications background, people from fields such as behavioral economics, sociologists for that psychologists, matter. Psychologists, absolutely. Well, yeah. Yeah. So a lot, lot of disciplines, a lot of people that will be part of this solution. But again, it's about sort of expanding yeah, it's uh, still so we're still the, on the, the conversation. Yeah. On the, I remember somebody told us and like a thought that when you have a problem, to face a problem is like a double funnel. So first you can identify the problem, then you expand a lot, and then you can kind of come together mm-hmm. to then find a solution. Mm-hmm. Although AMR won't have only a solution. We know we talk about yeah. this that because it is not just one problem; it That's won't right. have only one solution. Right. And I think you clearly made a point for that during your lecture today at the workshop, that it is not just one. It's many. (laughs) But I think we need to be careful not to just marvel at complexity, right? Mm -hmm. It's important that while we acknowledge that AMR is a very interrelated problem that affects lots of policy areas, that we can still make a difference within individual policy areas. Mm -hmm. And success will ultimately depend on action across all areas, but we can still focus on these individual steps. And for instance, say... And that is actually needed to be focused in a way. I agree. And I think we've now sort of expanded the sort of field of vision enough to understand how much it will take 
Uh Um, And what will be relevant now is that we take sort of concrete steps in certain areas. And I think importantly also that we map progress and that we keep track of what does work and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Because countries obviously will implement such policies at different moments in time. And I think it'll help tremendously in the future if some countries can learn from the success stories, but also the mistakes and failures of other countries that have already implemented certain certain protocols or stewardship programs, for instance. Yeah, I was actually thinking in that way that from the ethics, perhaps, point of view, or policy point of view, how much of a responsibility do, let's say, developed countries that have been working in this for a while and that they hold a certain amount of knowledge on it, what responsibility do they have to help countries where things are different and harder in some aspects, given that the context is so different, but also that these developed countries can learn from what has happened in developed countries and what is working, what is not working, mm. and understand how the context plays a role mm. you know, in it all. I think you raise a very important question that's very difficult to answer. Certainly, I think high-income countries can and should do more to support antimicrobial stewardship, but also the establishment of basic healthcare functions in many low- and middle-income countries. And that'll not just be relevant for antimicrobial resistance, mm-hmm. but also for other health-related factors, right? But to what extent... Individual countries have that duty, I think, is a difficult question to answer in a sort of more general way. way. Nevertheless, I think that what we're realizing now is that challenges like AMR have a global relevance anyway, and we can't shield ourselves at the national level, no matter how well established certain protocols are Mm. in high income countries such as Sweden or Norway. The real challenge in the future will presumably be the import of Mm -hmm. drug-resistant infections. And to reduce the risk of that happening is not a matter of shielding yourself and blocking uh, yourself from from the rest of the world, but of helping others to achieve, hopefully, ideally, similar status. Yeah, exactly. So that that we don't have to worry so much about this exchange because there will be so much inequalities in between the different places. I understand. We will have to start wrapping up soon because we have a very tight schedule for today. But I would like to ask you if you have anything that you would like to tell to our audience or that you thought that it would be very good to put out. Well, I think looking back at the last eight or so years that I've actually worked with AMR, I think seeing initiatives such as the Antibiotic Resistance Center here in Uppsala and other similar initiatives it makes me really hopeful for the sort of future development in this field because when I entered this field, it felt that interdisciplinary work or multidisciplinary work was still often limited to, let's say, the fields of microbiology and medicine. Mm-hmm. Bringing together a medical microbiologist with a clinician would qualify as multi or interdisciplinary. And I think we've recognized the complexity of the problem and the many different aspects that we have to address and the many different skill sets and qualifications it'll take to do that and seeing how far we've come in attracting people from all sorts of different disciplines right today there were people from linguistics from economics engineering people who have an express interest in antibiotic resistance and want to bring their respective skill set to the table i think that's a great development and one that we should continue to build on yeah not only that they want to bring to the table but they're also the willingness to learn from the other disciplines and to find synergies and to understand each other's problems and talk to each other in a way that something can come out of it. Yes, I I think think that's that's, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Great. So thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. And I 
I hope well, that our audience enjoyed the interview as much as I did. And also your talk was excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Jenny, can you uh, wrap up with us a little bit of the interview and what were your thoughts about it? So I thought it was really interesting. I mean, we've had an ethicist on before. Mm-hmm. He was more yeah. talking about like the ethics, that what ethics is in terms of antibiotic resistance and what role it plays and what we should think about. But Dr. Lutmo is very, I mean, he's much more policy now. He works in a kind of different field. And I thought it was very interesting when he was talking about how his PhD was very abstract and not very defined. I mean, and then he went into his role as a policy advisor at React, which was much more practical, much more hands-on and like actual, how do say, implementations and such and what can actually be done. And I thought it was very interesting. I mean, it's often something that we think about theoretically, what you can do, and then really putting this into, okay, but now what is actually going to happen? Sometimes I wonder how practically, how much ethics is taken into consideration when making policies? You know, like what are the driving forces for bringing a policy forward on something? Is it because we want to increase the... um, well-being of the citizens in a given country mm-hmm. is it because we want to save money for a given country is it because we want to be more um helping other countries for example yeah. so but how much ethics and ethical dilemmas are mm-hmm. put into consideration when making those policies i i wonder how much of that is already there yeah i mean in general with policy making yeah it's, it's re- i mean i don't i really don't know i mean and then on top of that with AMR, and we talk about this, like the complexity of AMR, okay, to some degrees, it's a matter of money. Uh-huh. AMR is going to cost healthcare systems more money in the future. And on top of that, I mean, it's a matter of lives. It's a matter of human impact and not just money. So, I mean, this, I think the ethical aspect is kind of closer to home mm-hmm. when it comes to AMR questions, but it still comes down to policy and money and who's going to do what and who's going to take responsibility for what. And you guys kind of touched on that, like, to what degree do high-income countries have responsibility to help low-income countries with problems? And, and I mean, it, it, it's just something that you touched on, but it's one of these things of like, okay, the ethics of that question. I mean, where does that come in? And that's a very concrete policy outcome, mm-hmm. you know? Of course, I want to uh, refer our listeners to the episode with Christian Montes' mm-hmm. interview, because that one was very heavily on ethics and how ethics specifically relate to MR. So we are not going to cover that in this discussion. But if you have not listened to that one, go there and check out because it's super interesting how, well, ethics is everywhere and is specifically on antibiotic resistance, antimicrobial resistance. It's really important. Mm -hmm. So I also thought it was, it's kind of interesting that, uh, well, this interview, as you said, it was conducted back in April mm-hmm. when he was here for this workshop on ethics and antibiotics. But a lot of what he comments on in the communication aspect is what we just very recently been talking about as the aftermath of the report or the work on reframing AMR that the Wellcome Trust put yeah. forward, right? About this idea that what we need is to find the consequences. It's not mm-hmm. enough we say in or telling people what AMR is. We need to tell them why is it important for them Mm -hmm. and what are the consequences of it. And then also that we should be able to point out actionable steps and concrete things that can be done 
in order to get somewhere. Mm -hmm. So it was like kind of nice now listening to yeah. him talking on the light of what we just have learned and have studied this past month with mm -hmm. the report. It was like kind of, hmm, yeah, this like is... Like a confirmation uh, that this is something that's been... Yeah, of course. I mean, it makes about. total sense. But now when it's put in this bigger framework, yeah, he's very right that those mm -hmm. are the things that are needed. And we're and he, there. He also brought up the challenge of implementation. I mean, when we really need to implement these new policies and other things. I mean, there are a lot of things that are in text already. It's just a matter of really getting it into action. And that's actually something that kind of when we recently had the Antibiotic Awareness Week, Those of us involved in this podcast actually went to the European Antibiotic Awareness Day launch event at the ECDC. And one of the things that we caught ourselves talking about in the breaks was implementation. A lot of work has been done, but how much has actually come into action? How, how do we, yeah, this idea of putting knowledge into action. Yeah, and putting policy into action. I mean, there's a, there can be a lot of support behind some of these things, but how do we get from political support to action on the ground, people actually being affected and actually trying to make improvements mm -hmm. how do you enforce the changes right exactly you, yeah hmm. and i thought that was just interesting that it also came up in this interview which you had in april which was something that i mean i hadn't listened to this interview before the we were at the event and that you talked about implementation again and that's what, i think that's something we haven't talked about too much here on the podcast is the difference between what's been said in policies and what's been stated in agreements and action plans and such and what's actually changed on the ground for lack of a better word Yeah, I mean, the word out there, of course, is that, uh, well, after the global action plan was brought up and then so many and so many countries agreed to develop a national action plan and implement a national action plan, that the most challenging step is actually not coming up with a national action plan, is to actually make it happen. Mm -hmm. So a lot of countries got kind of stuck into, like, yeah. Yeah, now we have national action plan, but what's the next step? How do yeah. we actually make it work and how do we divide this into little steps or key yeah. things that can be done how do we break this complexity mm. like what yeah that he also mentioned like break the, the complexity and take it step by step and then you're looking the greater effect that we're looking at is the whole mm -hmm. but yeah. step by step these small little things that actually play a role yeah it was a nice kind of tie into a lot of things that we thought about lately yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's good to be going through the older interviews that we still have on yeah. the backlog and And see how they all relate to things that have been working on and moving on and we've been talking to here. So yeah. a lot of things, of course, are repeated, like talking over and over again about the O'Neill report and if it's okay mm -hmm. or not, the numbers or what it meant and why it was important. You know, we talk about some things over and over again, but that mm -hmm. also it's proof that these are important things to talk about. Yeah. And I do kind of like hearing different people's opinions on the O'Neill report and Dr. Sally Dames and all of this. It's just fun to see how everybody in the field is like slightly different. Yeah. feelings and views and whatnot yeah i just like seeing <laughs> great so we are going to move forward to the news section because mm -hmm. today we bring two things that we really want to talk in depth about yeah. that we think are very interesting and moving on from reports into something a little bit more <laughs> real things that we need in the emr world yeah. yeah so hope you enjoy the interview and see you in a little while Welcome to our new section. So we are going to talk about two pieces that uh, complement each other really nicely. Yeah, I think they were actually published like right after each other in yes. the same journal. <laughs> And uh, I think that was not the original idea as I read in uh, John Rex's uh, newsletter entry, but it comes together really nicely. Yeah. And well, first of all, I want to say thank you to John Rex to the newsletter because he puts all these things together really nicely. And 
it's a huge help for us to you know summarize things and put things together yeah uh he's going to be on the podcast soon so he will talk here as well about his work but now let's dive into it so jenny could you present to us the first we're talking about today. Yeah, so the first piece is a review article in Nature Reviews Microbiology called The Global Preclinical Antibacterial Pipeline, and it was published November 19th, 2019. There has been a review of the clinical phase of antibiotics relatively recently, looking at, in other words, antibiotic or antibacterial therapies that are already in human trials. So we've talked about clinical trials before, phase one, phase two, phase three. Yes, and we have commented on some specific projects that are moving from phase one to phase two, exactly. phase two to phase three, but this is a little bit more challenging. Yeah, so this is more challenging. Preclinical is everything before it ever gets into a human. Yes. So what they've defined as preclinical here is at least antibacterial projects that were at least in the lead generation phase, which is when you're kind of finding promising things, but they need to be optimized. Yeah. So something that might work, but it still needs to be worked on a lot. Exactly. It's a to, long way from there. Basically, yeah. so it's like you have something that might work, but you need to make it a drug mm -hmm. by modifying things or trying to find a way that it will work better. Yeah. And up until any like anything before human studies, mm -hmm. so it's this whole phase. And so this article found, or this review article found, over 407 projects. Yeah, so this is tricky because, yeah. well, first I think we need to say that it is tricky to find this information because those early stages of these scientific projects are quite unsure, like mm -hmm. many will probably not continue. Yeah. So there's also a lot of confidentiality because you might have something that might work. Of course, you don't want this group or you don't want that another company or another group will start working in a similar thing. Mm -hmm. So pulling this information together is quite tricky and challenging. And what they've done is to pull together information from different databases. Yeah, they looked at five different databases yeah. and they pulled together all the information they could find. And mm -hmm. it was combinations of public information and private personal communications that they've had with people at these companies. They don't really release a lot of specifics no, about no, this either. So not. this is very, we say, meta-level information about these. But it classes what they're working on, that sort of thing. It's not even Type a lot of information of approach, about yeah. where they are in the process. It's yeah. just basically what are the different methods and how many things are out there. To have an idea of how many might actually come into the market later yeah. as well. So yeah, so you said there were 400-something projects 407 projects that they found. So of these 400 projects, they divided the projects into different categories to make yeah. easier the analysis of what's going on. Okay, so the main ways they grouped these 407 projects was into direct acting small molecules. That's kind of, if you're thinking about what we call antibiotics today, that's pretty much it. Potentiators. So an example of that is beta-lactamase inhibiting molecules. Yeah, so there are things that you will put together with an antibiotic to make the antibiotic work better. Yeah, they themselves don't have an antibacterial property, but together they do. Repurposed drugs, so things that are already approved but are being repurposed for this. Antibodies and vaccines. There are pathogens. Yeah, they're for select purposes. Immunomodulators, which are specifically supporting path elimination. Yeah, so they help the body basically clear up the infection. Exactly. Antivirulence approaches. So this one's can cover a bunch of different things, mm -hmm. but basically changing what makes the pathogen cause an infection. Yes. And preventing it from being able to continue causing an infection. And this might be perhaps used alone, but also in combination maybe with antibiotics to try yeah. to, to avoid like reinfection or 
further infection. Exactly. They might not kill the, or they don't kill the bacteria itself, but the idea is either that combination with antibiotic or that maybe if it doesn't cause, if you change the properties of the bacteria, maybe it will stop causing the infection. The body's own immune system can handle it Mm -hmm. on its own. And then they also look at phages and microbiota, which is something we've talked a little bit about, at least the phages, Mm -hmm. because that comes up as specific cases where phages have been used to clear bacterial infections. But we haven't talked that much about microbiota, I don't think. No, it's so the, the idea behind this is drugs that will be able to potentiate the microbiota, and these will actually help against infection. Yeah. So of all of these groups, there are definitely the most of the direct acting small molecules. Again, there's like more what you think of classical antibiotic. Yeah, which kind of makes sense because there are like seven different categories. But I think it's also interesting that all these other categories have something going on, right? Yeah, they found something in all the categories. Different approaches being tested, being looked into, Mm -hmm. and possibly maybe something will end up. Yeah, I don't think any of them had just like one example. I mean, there were several for each. Yeah. Which is nice. It's it's a really diverse, and that's one of the things they bring up in this review is that it's a really diverse landscape. Landscape, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But interestingly enough, if we're looking at these direct acting small molecules, still seventy percent of those. So it's a little bit less than half of all, but seventy percent of that half is new targets, new classes, new mechanisms of action. I mean, which we really, really need. So yeah, it's basically a drug that is working in a way that we have not seen before or that we don't have already. Which the hope is then that resistance mechanism that already exists won't lead to resistance here. With this. With this, yeah. Yeah. So that's really promising is that there's so many new mechanisms that we're looking at. The downside is what they've talked about a little bit in this review article is that some of these were mechanisms of action that were discovered a long time ago that were maybe given up on because of the city, side effect. Mm. We're a little bit more desperate now. But maybe... Yeah, both in being able to really market drugs that might have a higher side effect just because they are going to be used when they are really needed. I mean, if you are going to die of an infection, you might want to be put into the risk group of having this particular side effect. But also maybe now we also have new ways to modify that molecule to reduce those potential side effects. So I think... Like you were talking about this making it into a drug and a lot of that is minimizing side effects and working on how that drug is delivered into the body. So how it spreads through the body and how the body breaks it down. And we do have some new... I don't know much about this personally, but it's been a while. There's probably been some progress on in these mm-hmm. fields. Yeah, to... so it's good to revisit it and then look into, exactly. into those type of mechanisms as well. Yeah. What I found also interesting is about estimations of how many of these can actually get yeah. you know, somewhere where people can start using them. John Rex, personally, he says that he thinks perhaps four mm-hmm. things can come out of this 400, which is like 1% of that. But you have to have in account that only half of them are actually direct molecules, which yeah. have perhaps a higher percentage rate of success. The other things are more, let's say, adventurous or different type of things that might not have the same success rate so yeah overall like four things coming out of that which i don't think it's bad right no this is there's promising. four new things yeah. that we will be able to use exactly um, and hopefully we will be able to use them and with the knowledge we have now we will be able to secure their activity for perhaps a longer time absolutely one of the things they bring up in this article is one of the difficulties and especially when we're talking about for example phages microbiota antivirulence approaches a lot of these are things that kind of are going to are meant to be given in complement with Mm. treatment yeah to really make a treatment as effective as possible or given prophylactically to prevent an infection and both of these things are kind of with the current regulatory setup hard to prove Uh uh-huh yeah yeah and it's not i mean it's not necessarily a bad thing that it's a good thing that we have strict limits on these sorts of things that we really need proof that something is good and functioning to give yeah, it before putting, before it in a person. putting it in a person more widespread yeah and they also bring up that a lot of these other things are very about 40 percent of these projects are 
focus on a specific pathogen, mm-hmm. which also leads to other complications. You need diagnostics if you're really going to make something pathogen specific. Yeah. But at the same time, it's good that things are pathogen specific. Yeah, that's not... what we actually need in exactly. order to tackle this problem. And this we'll talk a little bit more when we review the second piece, yeah. but that we need to get more specific if we can. Mm-hmm. But it's also... Another problem that people, I don't think people forget about, but they even mention it here, a small company or a smaller medium-sized company that went bankrupt, Achaigen, that they had trouble producing a pathogen-specific antibiotic because they had trouble enrolling people in the trial. Yeah, I mean, because we say here, yeah, resistance is a big problem mm-hmm. because resistance will eventually mean that an infection will be deadly. Yeah. But the percentage of infections that are actually resistant in that way is not that many. No. So when you actually need to recruit patients that are suffering from those specific things, it might not be easy mm-hmm. for to actually get the numbers to have the results you need mm-hmm. to show that you can use this in this specific manner. Yeah. So if it needs to be a specific pathogen, if it needs to have certain resistance patterns, I mean, even if these are things that are expanding, you need to also know what study you can enroll a patient in. Like, this also needs to be in the mind of the prescriber, I'm guessing. I mean, as someone who doesn't work in healthcare, I can imagine that this isn't the first thing you think about is, okay, do I know exactly which trials are on for this drug and can we enroll this patient fast enough? Yeah. It might not be something that, I mean, a lot of these things might come down to really quick decisions. And I'm guessing it's something that plays a role. But I did find another thing interesting about this article. So a lot of these projects, I mean, we said 407 projects, 81% of the institutions that are working on these projects are small and medium-sized enterprises, so less than 1,000 employees. A lot of them are even, I mean, less than 10. Mm, And this is difficult. If you're going to bring a drug to human trials and really, I mean, optimization of the drug, not just this agent has an antibacterial property. You really need to optimize it and work through all these sorts of things. That, That requires a lot of expertise. And they bring up that a lot of these projects are probably incredibly sensitive for financial reasons, because they're small companies, they're putting all their eggs in one basket. They have mm. this one thing, maybe two. They're based on the same technologies most of the time, and they have only the knowledge there. They might be missing some of this expertise that a large company could have in purely drug optimization. Mm. That's why some of the newer initiatives to support these small and medium enterprises are so important. I'm going yeah. to mention it later because this is this is something that it's needed in this market. Mm-hmm. Also, these companies basically rely on that. So they yeah. have huge hurdles into basically try to break even all the money they're putting into that. When are they going to recover that money to mm-hmm. be able to to keep the company afloat? And this is basically what yeah happened to Acarian, right? Yeah. They put a lot of money because it needed to be put. And then when the antibiotic went into the market, the first years, they didn't make any money. No. Rightfully so, because you don't want to overuse it and the antibiotics is are not put at a higher high price like other drugs but it is a problem yeah it's just a, a good example of something we're going to talk about later in the viewpoints article at the some of the issues and mm-hmm. this i mean this is just shows you how important these small and medium enterprises are for this pipeline mm-hmm. but they do have a really nice little summary of the main features of this article so i thought i'd just run through them for those that maybe don't have access to this article later yeah so in conclusion They found a high level of diversity and interesting scientific approaches, much more so than the clinical pipeline. They found that less than half of the projects involved direct acting small molecules. They found that more than half of the projects involve non-traditional and, you know, additive therapies, so things that can be given together with antibiotics to improve their function, where there's an unclear regulatory pathway to show clinically relevant benefit. 
And non-traditional approaches might also not build on validated predictive preclinical models, and therefore they have a higher risk of failure in the clinical stage because the system is not really made for this type of new approaches. Yeah, for example, we use certain we have certain set models in humans, and this, these may not apply in these cases. There is a good focus on the WHO critical priority pathogens list, with these with some exceptions. And there is a strong trend towards pathogen-specific or patient-specific therapies that, of course, require a high-developed healthcare system and also um, the availability of advanced and rapid diagnostics. There's also a strong dependence on public and philanthropic funding, as we said, with the small and medium enterprises and such. And also there is a high volatility due to the high-risk strategies and translational challenges that are pursued by these smaller companies. Yeah, so that's just a little summary of the paper given by, as the authors state themselves, pretty much. Yeah, basically that's verbatim from the article, but just basically the key Mm -hmm. notes from it. So Ava, can you tell us about the second article we're talking about today? Yeah, so this second piece was also published in the same journal, in Nature Reviews Microbiology, but this one is a viewpoint. And I found it particularly interesting and enlightening because it's basically personal voices of people that have been working on this problem of antibiotic resistance from different areas. Mm -hmm. So it's a very multidisciplinary voice into into the issue. And even though each one of them really shows that their their expertise and their their concerns and the area where they work the most, you can also see some general trends for specific issues. And I also like it because it's like three, they ask them three main key questions that everybody in this uh, work is asking themselves. So the first question is, what are the economic, regulatory and societal factors and challenges that contribute to the decrease in antibiotics coming into the research and development pipeline? The second question is, what are the new ideas that try to, to counteract this decline? So basically, what are we doing for this? Yeah. And then the third one is we know that even if we bring new antibiotics into the pipeline and new things come into the market, resistance is a problem that is due to exist always because yeah. bacteria will always evolve. So what else is needed from our side to combat the problem of antibiotic resistance? These are the three key questions that yeah. would actually get us somewhere, right? What's the problem and what are we going to do about it? What are the three main questions that we need to have in, in account in this problem? So basically, what is the problem? What are we going to do about it? And how is that going to continue with antimicrobial resistance being what it is? Yes. So actually, this article has been also put available publicly. So we're mm-hmm. going to leave a link to that so you can take a look. But I found that it's interesting to present who they talk to. Uh, which was Christine Ordal, Manika Balasegaram, Ramanan Laxminarajan, David McAdams, Kevin Alterson, John Rex. And we apologize if these names are not pronounced correctly. Some of them I'm familiar with, others I'm not. So that's that, that, let's leave that this <laughs> here, here. Yeah, so I just also want to say a couple of things that I found particularly interesting. Yeah. So, well, of course, when it comes to what are the economic, regulatory, and societal factors and challenges that contribute to this dry pipeline, the main thing is that the economic models as they are today, they are not working for antibiotics yeah. because it's not profitable. And the societal challenges still is that in different parts of the world, the problem of use, misuse, and access is still there. Mm-hmm. And the regulatory things as well. Right? In some parts of the world, antibiotics can be acquired without prescriptions. Yeah. In other parts of the world, there are more regulations. So, 
of course that's that's there and it is hard to create an, or to get a new antibiotic approved for use again i think even as i say in this article for good reason and many times but that is a part of the challenge i found particularly positive note kevin Alderson's uh, contribution to this question that he really points out he believes completely that the only thing that is preventing us from this pipeline to get better mm-hmm. it's an economic issue it's not yeah. a scientific or not a regulatory one so we just need to kind of find a way to bring the money where it's needed yeah. right which, which is a positive thing yeah it might be sad to think okay it's all about the money but if it's all about the money there might be a way to get there right yeah. and especially i mean dr Edison works himself with a lot of this with the push-pull mechanisms and everything and he talks about that a lot here push-pull incentives That puts us on the second question, which is what are we doing right now? And there's, of course, a lot of mentioning about uh, that both pull and push incentives are needed to get somewhere. Mm -hmm. That push incentives have been already pretty much implemented and with success when it comes to new initiatives like Carvex or Mm -hmm. GATP or the repair fund or the enable work. So yeah, there's these, several examples in different places. Yes, and it has both been good. putting together public and private money. Yeah. So this is kind of working and this we're doing something and is there on the way and mm-hmm. with results and success that we can measure. But the pool incentives are a little bit more tricky. And they're a little bit more tricky because of regulatory and because of political um, decisions and political weight, mm-hmm. in a sense. But I thought, found interesting the mentioning of some sort of different ideas. For example, the Netflix type of uh, approach to antibiotics that would mean that the countries can have a subscription to certain antibiotics. Mm-hmm. So you pay to have the access to them, even if you are not going to use them. Yeah. But that means that... It's basically like streaming. <laughs> yeah, so it does the thing. You pay, everybody pays, and then mm-hmm. when it's needed, they will be used. I also found interesting, and I didn't know that Sweden is trying to to run a pilot right now where that actually also, it's like an annual reimbursement to companies that can mm-hmm. ensure that certain antibiotics are going to be available. And I think Sweden is now in the stage of uh, analyzing which antibiotics we will need to have in such a program and then try to see if this works uh, and then maybe implement it. So this yeah. is something that relates to Sweden. It's Was really this interesting. just in Sweden or is it uh, I think Sweden is part it, of the pilot? It's, it's mentioned that is there's one in Sweden and there's okay. one in the United Kingdom. And I don't think they are related, but okay. it says that if this is proves to be effective yeah. and more countries go into it, that might actually change the view of investors into mm-hmm. putting money for companies that are going to be part of this type of yeah. schemes, right? And that also focuses, I mean, the supply side of it. Sometimes mm-hmm. antibiotics, there's an issue of, is there the right antibiotic at the right place at the right time? Not just last line antibiotic, but basic need antibiotics. Yeah. I mean, the first line antibiotics. So that might help with that case as well. And John Rex of explains his analogy of the fire extinguisher, which I'm not going to explain in detail because he will actually talk about it in the interview we're going to feature soon. But it's basically the same idea. Antibiotics should be thought as an insurance, right? Mm -hmm. And this comes forward to something I found very interesting and all throughout this viewpoint article that a lot of our problems perhaps would be not solved directly but found a way to be solved if we change our point of view of what antibiotics are from these drugs that can individually treat an infection to a person to antibiotics as a public good and a public infrastructure that needs to be 
globally taken care of. Yeah. And the same way that we see vaccines today and the same way we see defense nationally in countries or we see roads of access to water, sanitation, it's, it's rather not something isolated, but something that is a public good. And if yeah. we just change that point of view, maybe we can get somewhere. Yeah. It, that is, that, I feel like that's a really good point, but also like, there's a lot of conflicting standpoints there. I mean, if you ask individual healthcare providers, then that's going to be a really hard one to turn from antibiotics as a way to treat the individual patient to a common good. Yeah, because their decisions actually affect an individual person. Exactly. But when it comes to regulation, when it comes to where the money comes from, where yeah. the money is put into, perhaps this viewpoint would actually be yeah. more useful. Absolutely. So that was very cool. And then as the last question, which is, okay, even if we bring new antibiotics in the pipeline and we put new antibiotics out there, resistance is going to happen. So what else is needed? This comes back with what we just talked in the previous article, that what we need is more specific treatments, more mm -hmm. specific diagnostics, more specific diagnostics would allow us to prevent the transmission of infections and particularly resistance variants. And also we need better sanitation. So overall, yeah. try to prevent infections before they happen mm -hmm. because that would actually reduce the use of the antibiotics and it would reduce the accumulation of resistance. And this is something we've been talking a lot extensively. Sanitation, but health infrastructure. <laughs> yes. So if we... And then institutions like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that work on this just... I mean, not the antibiotic resistance, not making new antibiotics, but preventing infections through health infrastructure, clean water, clean access to healthcare in general. Yeah. So, of course, this should not be forgotten. Even yeah. if we are able to pull a lot of money to get new antibiotics through. And They're not going to solve the, the problem. They're going to help. Definitely not. But yeah. That's the analogy of autocart, right? Of the leaking bucket. Yeah. yeah. With the... That if you, yeah, you can put more water into a leaking bucket, but it's going to leak yeah. <laughs> sooner or later. The rate of the water coming into the bucket doesn't really prevent the bucket from getting empty mm -hmm. at some point. So, yeah. So yeah. this is, we of course will leave the links. Uh, yeah. This is a particularly interesting read, so I would encourage you to mm -hmm. take a look at it. And I just wanted to point out too, because I actually didn't mention it when we even talked about the first article. I mean, for, you mentioned John Rex is coming up as one of our interview mm -hmm. in the future, hopefully the near future. But we also, Kevin Oderson is in both of these, the Viewpoint and the Review article. And we have an old interview from him, if you'd like to take a listen. We've been hoping to interview Ursula Therutzbacher. Yeah, what we mean is that, you know, the art the authors of these both articles are very knowledgeable, very important in this area, and definitely worth picking their brains and learning their career and their work through through this. With that, thank you so much for being with us once more, and I hope to have you back with us uh, next month. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. You can find a link to his Spotify in the episode notes.